Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are expecting, as you've heard on the radio over the course of the day today, Scott Thompson was talking about it, and I think Bill may have as well this morning, but we are expecting tomorrow another interest rate hike here in Canada. And the, the, the goal, of course, as it has been with all the interest rate hikes, is to bring down inflation, get things, get costs under control, which is a laudable and a reasonable goal. That is for sure. And, and it has come down. So there has been a, a level of success to this strategy. However, we are now at a point when a number of analysts are saying, okay, but we now have to be very, very careful because what's going to happen with these, with this or these next interest rate hike is getting into some dangerous territory. One analyst says this is a war on workers. Another one, and this one was, uh, was even more stark, says that the rate, the goal of this next rate is to hurt people. The idea being, if you can't afford to be spending, then you will not spend as much money. And that will mean that some jobs will be lost because some places will go out of business and less people spending money with less money to spend means we'll get inflation down. I want to bring in Eric Cam. He is a director of the International Economics and Finance Undergraduate Program at Toronto Metropolitan University. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am okay. But when I hear experts say that ultimately interest rates, the goal now, I don't think that, I don't think that Tiff Macklin is sitting in his room, like an evil villain in a bond movie, you know, stroking a white cat and giggling at the idea of hurting people. But what these analysts are saying is ultimately, if you keep doing this, you will hurt people that will maybe get inflation down, but people have to be hurt to make that happen. Is that fair? It's not just fair, it's 100% accurate. And I think this is what's driving many analysts, uh, myself included, crazy, is that we understand that there's a mission here. And the mission is very clear. Go to the webpage, you can read it. We want the rate of inflation, we want the yearly change in the price level to be 2%. Not much higher, not much lower. And so the Bank of Canada has gone after that fiercely with unprecedented speed. And so my concern isn't getting to that 2%. I think we're going to get to that 2%. We were at 2% for the better part of about 20 years. It's this speed. It is the speed of adjustment that the Bank of Canada seems to be going at. I mean, if you're not a quantitative person, well, in fact, even if you're not a quantitative person, I think everybody can understand the difference between the numbers 0.25% and 5%. And if the rate goes up tomorrow by a quarter percent, we are at 5%. That's happened really in about a year, a year and a bit. And that is, in economic terms, warp speed. It is warp speed. And it's punishing, well, everybody. I mean, yes, workers, but everybody. It's just unfortunate that when these things happen, the lower part of the socioeconomic totem pole tends to get hurt the worst. So that is a really long-winded answer to say, yes, it's too fast. Yes, it's going to hurt people. Yes, it's an attack on, on workers. I like the goal. You're right. Dr. Macklem's actually a very nice guy. He's not out to hurt someone. What he's saying is, let's try some short-term pain for some long-term gain. My problem is I think the bank is, has forgotten how bad that short-term pain can be, Scott. Uh, okay, I'm going to be a simpleton here, and... 
is does this not suggest that a fix to inflation would be a recession then? If we can push the country into a recession, that will slow down spending. That would keep inflation down. Is that not ultimately where we're going? Okay, so it's ultimately where we're going. It's not ultimately the goal of the Bank of Canada. Nowhere is anyone in the Bank of Canada going to say the goal here is to push the economy into a recession. What they're trying to do is walk this razor's edge between bringing prices down and getting into a recession, and they think that they've reached, in their opinion, obviously, they think that this 4.75 or 5% is the sweet spot. That's how we can bring down prices without tanking the economy. And so the backlash you're hearing are from both academic and private sector economists saying, no, you've missed the mark, and that's not a sweet spot. That number is going to put the economy into a recession, which I actually believe it will, and I say that for two reasons. Number one, the inflation that has gone through the economy so far has not yet really reached the labor market. But if the Bank of Canada keeps knocking on that door, you can rest assured the next market it's going to take down is the labor market and the employment market, and that's never a good thing. And number two is I did a little sifting through the statistics, and 18% of Canadians have renegotiated their mortgage in the last year. And you go, well, that sounds pretty good. No, it's horrendous. It means that four out of five people who have to renegotiate their mortgage haven't done so yet. And they are going to be in this new world of six, seven, eight percent mortgages, potentially coming from mortgages of between one and two percent, Scott. So I see the housing market and the labor market right now teetering on the brink. The bank doesn't think we're going to push it over. I do. Well, the other thing, too, is um, and you and I have talked about this and, and others have talked about this on this show and others, that if you flood the market with money, you hurt. Tiff Macklin's attempts to bring down inflation. You just, you can't, one of the ideas is to have less money to spend. That's why we're increasing interest rates to borrow. And yet the federal government keeps introducing new plans to help people through tough times by flooding more money into the economy. It seems like every move that Tiff Macklin makes, the government, the federal government makes a move that pulls the rug right out from under him. And it's incredible, isn't it? And it's almost too easy to have a pampered tenured professor come on the radio with you and tell people what they want to hear, which is the federal government doesn't seem to have any idea of what they're doing. The problem is the federal government doesn't seem to have any idea of what they are doing. I don't understand the counterintuitive politics and economics of this liberal government. I am all about the quote-unquote average worker. I have no horse in a race. I don't work for a bank. And I want to see people's disposable incomes rise. And they keep coming up with ridiculous methods like overtaxing on carbon and then giving a break, watching food prices go up and then give them a break. How about instead of giving them a break, just be a little bit more diligent in your timing of what you're trying to do with the price level. This much like the, the, the pandemic itself, you know, you and I should write a paper. The spending was too fast in the pandemic. And now the attempts to bring the prices down are too fast after the pandemic. It really is an exercise in speed and it's been botched coming in and going out of the recession of the pandemic. Yeah, I, it, it does seem, and, and I mean, again, I, I, I'm not an economist, and everything I le- most of the things I learn about economy, of the economy and money is from talking to people like you on this show, and it's a great learning tool, but it's also, uh, you know, one of the things that has been made very clear again and again and again 
is that putting more and more and more money into the economy is self-defeating. And you're right. That seems to be something that's happening again and again and again. And I understand, and I think you would probably agree that if the federal government doesn't do this, there would be pain for people. And I don't think anybody wants that, but it, it almost seems as though we're just extending the length of the pain for everybody by doing this. That's exactly what you're doing. That is, and, it, and it is this, and it is this disconnect between the federal government and the Bank of Canada that has existed pre-pandemic that is, is there still today. I mean, I, you know that I've often told you I don't blame the Bank of Canada for what they've had to do because of what they were handed during and after the pandemic. But I definitely blame these two arms of the same government that seem to be working against each other. And if you just weren't so fast in trying to drag the money out of, money out of the economy, I don't think you'd have to give handouts, which you're right, are counterintuitive. And I don't think it would have to slam the labor market Sadly, the way I think that it's going to, it's an incredible time of economic history. One day people are going to look back and go, what the hell was going on in 2023? And I actually hope I'm around to see this because it actually is fascinating if fascinating meant horrifying. And we got to go, but is it not the middle class? I mean, I know the lower class is going to be hurt by this, but is it not the middle class that's getting really dinged by this? Because they're the ones who actually try to own homes and try to make purchases and everything is more. Are, are they not the ones getting hammered? Yeah, the middle class is getting hammered. But um, again, I'm not trying just to, you know, get votes running for anything, but it is the, it is the lower third that are truly truly going to get hammered because what happens when those people lose their jobs and they have no access to credit so i easiest thing in the world to say that poor people are going to be affected the most but poor people are going to be affected the most and it's very sad yeah and uh, you know what this is uh, nothing to do with you but we just you know we've been talking about it on the show that uh we're also hearing of a 10% tax increase here in Hamilton next year, which, you know, you put it all together, it's, uh, it's glorious times for your, for your wallet. Eric Cam, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, thanks as always for this. Always an honour. Stay healthy, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a report that, uh, from The Lancet, the medical journal, there's a report that by 2050, 1.3 billion, with a B, 1.3 billion people across the planet will have diabetes. Right now it's about 500 and, where's the number here I saw, 500 and, uh, 529 million people in 2021, the last time they did it, 529 people across the planet had diabetes. That will more than double in the next 30 years. It's a, it's a staggering thing to consider for a number of reasons. One is obviously the health impact on people. Two is the cost impact, the economic impact. It is absolutely enormous. Uh, Dr. Gregory Steinberg is a professor of medicine, co-director of McMaster's Center for Metabolism, Obesity, and Diabetes Research. Joins me now. Dr. Steinberg, thanks for this today. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. This is when uh, you've probably seen these numbers and these projections long before we saw them and we heard about them. But this is anytime you have something like this, any illness, any disease that is going, that is already huge and is going to more than double in a few decades, that's got to be staggering. Well, you know, I've been uh, studying diabetes since the 90s. And, you know, in the, in the 90s, it was predicted that there would be a uh, 200 million people with diabetes by 2020. And as you just said, 
Uh, and we thought that number was crazy. And we blew right past that number to over 500 million people. And now with these new projections up to 1.3 billion in the next 30 years, uh, yes, it's a, they are certainly uh, frightening statistics. I, I want to get to the medical stuff in a second, the health things in a second, because that's obviously the most important. But I'm going to go about this backwards, because the secondary part of this treating diabetes either as a as a treatment with insulin or whatever else or just the spin-off lingering side effects or impacts of diabetes on an economic basis that's enormous yeah absolutely we know diabetes increases your risk of uh, most any uh, chronic disease whether it be uh, dramatically increasing your risk of having a heart attack or stroke by over twofold increasing your risk of having many cancers uh, kidney disease, diabetic uh, retinopathy, eye disease. It's, it's basically a disease of accelerated aging where you will develop aged onset diseases at a much earlier time point than you probably would and might not if you didn't have diabetes. So you not only have people having to have medical treatment, you have people who probably can't work and then more drag on the social network that people have in different countries. I mean, it, it sort of, it, it hits everywhere. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you look at the costs of managing uh, all the chronic diseases and uh, that are uh, the risk of developing these with diabetes is greatly increased. It, it has a huge uh, economic impact. Let me read a line. There's a story in the Washington Post about this, which is where I read it today. Let me just read you a line from this. The researchers found that about 96% of people worldwide who had diabetes in 2021 had type 2. Uh, that's the kind of, this is me now, that's the kind that you uh, you get later in life. It's the kind you're not born with, right? It, it, it eventually, you eventually get it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so type 2 diabetes is commonly associated with uh, later onset disease right. development. Uh, uh, although, you know, now we do start to see people developing type 2 diabetes in childhood. And, and this is the part of the disease where uh, the initial... Uh, of the pancreas, the organ that makes the insulin, uh, works fine, but it becomes overwhelmed and it, it can't keep up with the, the demand. Okay, so let me just uh, finish. The insulin producing. Let me finish that sentence because this this yeah. goes to that point as well. Uh, uh, at type two, noting the increasing prevalence of type two diabetes worldwide is primarily due to a rise in obesity. I don't know that anybody would be shocked by that. Except that what we've done in our society and other societies around the world for the last number of years is try to reframe obesity as body positivity or, you know, we shouldn't be down on people or us who are large or whatever else. We've tried to make it, we've tried to normalize it, I think, honestly. The problem is I don't know that our, well, I know that our bodies don't listen to us normalizing it. If you are obese, the chances are you're going to get diabetes or you have a greater risk. You can't talk your way out of it. Yes, obesity is a major risk factor for type 2 diabetes. We know that uh, obesity rates and diabetes rates track very closely together. And, uh, you know, I think part of this conversation is really around uh, not normalizing obesity, but understanding that obesity is a disease. Um, It's not a choice. And uh, so that part of the conversation makes a lot of sense, but not to uh, underestimate the major health impact that obesity does have is, uh, is an important point. Is it dangerous, though, for us to, 
I mean, I, look, mental health is obviously enormously important. We don't want people to be m- suffering mental illness or depression because of their size, because of what they're facing. But is it dangerous to essentially just sort of slough off the fact that obesity is not okay or is not healthy, maybe is a better way to put it? No, it, 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 obesity is known to be a disease. It, it increases the risk of a number of chronic diseases and uh, uh I think the most important thing to understand is that it's it's not a choice, though so it's it's a it's a, it's not a lifestyle choice. It's not something choo- anyone chooses to be or not chooses to be by what they do. Our bodies are designed to store calories very efficiently in our current lifestyle, uh, where we have a minimal need for uh, a lot of activity and very dense caloric foods really precipitates the development of obesity in a huge proportion of the population. And as societies move more towards our uh, lifestyle, particularly in uh, the Middle East and Southeast Asia, uh, this is where most of these cases of diabetes are developing. You mentioned a few moments ago that we're seeing type 2 developing earlier in children. It used to be later, but we're seeing it in children now. We've also, and not to beat on a dead horse here, but we have gotten rid in a lot of cases of phys ed classes or activity kids playing outside or those things. Are those things connected, that we are seeing kids less active and therefore diabetes is more prevalent in young kids? Are those connected? Yeah, there's certainly evidence to suggest that uh, reductions in physical activity, which uh, many children have these days, uh, compared to uh, and most children are not meeting the uh, daily or weekly requirement for physical activity that's recommended by pediatric societies. And uh, we know that. And so there is a direct correlation between a lack of activity and uh and increase the risk of obesity and diabetes, but you know that's only part of the uh, part equation. Of it. Sure, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it is. It, it can be. I mean, no one's no. I don't think anyone. I'm certainly not. I'm, you're the doctor. I'm not. I'm not saying one plus one equals two. But it seems like there are certain things that you point to as changes in our society and the way we do things, and a rising case of this. And you go, I wonder if those two are connected. Uh, clearly, there may be some connection. Yo, absolutely. There's definite connection uh, between. Uh, more sedentary behavior and uh, uh, screen time and uh, an increased risk of obesity is part of the equation along with, you know, a lot of more densely uh, easy to consume high calorie Mm. foods. Dr. Gregory Steinberg from McMaster, the uh, chair, uh, the co-director, pardon me, of McMaster Center for Metabolism, Obesity and Diabetes Research. Uh, Appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice to speak to you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. What else in our world costs you nothing these days? Oh, I know what. Listening to Eric Alper, our friend, our music writer, our music publicist, our music expert, joins us now. Eric, how are you today? I'm good. I'm, uh, what's this huge check? for then. Yeah, I, that's right. It's well, got your name on it. Uh, it's in a, it's in a, uh, you know, a defunct currency that, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> one of those early you Roman coins. That... Isn't really, I can't use this at, at, at the, at the Hamilton, uh, in Hess village. Maybe, oh, you know, you can try. And if someone's yeah, intoxicated enough, you might slide it by, right. uh, you know, who was not 
working for free for the last little while was Elton John, who uh, on Saturday night, he, well, he performed what he says is his last live performance. It was in Stockholm, and he says it was his last live performance. You believe him? Oh, absolutely, for sure. Um, there, there comes a certain point where not only is enough is enough, but you have to take certain artists at their word. The Eagles have just announced their final yes. tour, and that could that. last four years um, because it's the first farewell tour. With Elton John, though, um, he's made a lot of bones in the past about um, the fact that he has missed his family growing up. He's got two young sons with his husband, David Furnesh. Um, and that when they looked at the, the school schedule before COVID, they realized that he was just going to be missing a lot of stuff and then COVID hit and that extended it for another two years. So he would have already been off the road and retired by 2021, but COVID certainly put a stop to that. I don't think this is his last show though. I can easily see him do a residency in right. Las Vegas or Madison square garden. Yeah. I, I, I don't there's think, no oh, way, you know, traveling around the world again, doing 40 shows in 55 days. No more. No. Yeah. And that I can understand, but there is no way that this is the last time we're going to see uh, Elton John performing. I would bet you your hair and my hair, but you, yeah. you, you get the short end of that one. Um, no, I, th there is 0% chance in my mind that Elton John has played his last public concert. Zero. No, especially because he's already said that he's not going to retire from music, that he still loves doing duets and features on other people's songs and bringing up the next batch of generation of yeah. superstars that he's worked with and hanging out with, you know, Madonna and Britney Spears and performing songs with them for release. So, yeah, I, I could see him going. Uh, uh, being the know, Beatles. The residency stuff I see totally. Yeah, I could see him being the Beatles where he's in studio like they did. They, they played lots of studio yeah. work after that. He's going to work. But yeah. I, I say that there is, there is no artist that, I, I mean, tell me who the last artist was who said, this is my farewell tour. You will not see me again and followed through with that. I can't think of a single one. They may not have done the world tours again, although many of them did. I mean, how many, how many farewell tours have Cher and Kiss and The Who had between them? Yeah. And uh, what's interesting is how many artists right now this year are have announced and claiming that this is their final yeah. tour. Um, you know, everybody from Journey to Foreigner, um, Kiss, there are so many artists that this could be it for them. I mean, they're all getting up there in age. They're all mid 70 to 80. They are at they're they're all at a level right now that we've never seen before. There's never look in the eighties during Live Aid, Paul McCartney and Elton John were the oldest people there. They were veterans yep. at thirty one and thirty two years old. Springsteen was thirty one when he sold out Madison Square Garden for the first time for the Born in the USA tour. That was old. Nobody was playing in their 40s, except if you were like B.B. King or some Chicago blues artist who got ripped off and couldn't afford anything, so needed to go back on the road. All of these people that you are no hearing about doing their last show, they're all incredibly wealthy. They've sold their catalog in some cases for hundreds of millions of dollars. They don't want to go through the grind of travel and, and touring anymore. It seems really nice 
that you get to go on a private jet and stay in the finest hotels and play to 50,000 people who adore you. But after a while, though, the physical side of it and the boredom just gets to you when you're like, I don't need to do this anymore. Yeah. That's what we're seeing this year. I, and I, 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 I was gonna say, I understand that. I don't, I don't, that's not how I travel, but I, I could get how, you know, for you or for me to get on a, one of these private jets and travel around for a couple of weeks would be like really spectacular and really cool. Oh, but af- yeah. after you do it for a year and a half, anything, I mean, it, like anything gets tiresome after a while. And, and so I get that part. The other thing though, that I really believe is that it's not just, I mean, the money is great. That That's one of the lures because, you know, somebody comes to you and says, hey, we, you can make $300 million by doing another tour. And you're like, well, I don't necessarily need it, but look what that could do. I could leave for my family or help with yeah. my charities. But the other thing, I really believe that most of these people, there is a drug, many of them have taken lots of drugs, but there is a drug that cannot be purchased and that is the buzz of being on stage and being adored and sung to with your own songs and the center of the uh-huh. world. Yeah. And uh, that you can't get anywhere else. And and ego. Yes. I mean, yeah, it all you ties can in. better believe that when Mick Jagger and Keith Richards takes a look at the potential billion dollar tour that Taylor Swift is on. I mean, look, Elton John closed off this tour at $910 million. It's the biggest tour ever in music history. Taylor Swift is going to demolish that. You can better believe that Springsteen is taking a look at Taylor Swift as much as they adore one another and say, I think I can beat that. You know, these are still people that if they debut at number 16 on the Billboard Hot 100, they hate everybody from 1 to 15. And there's something (laughs) in there. And you brought up a really interesting point, you know, like what artist has actually said goodbye? I think a better question is what artist has actually said goodbye to the road while still recording? Because it's very easy to say, well, R.E.M., they broke up. They've never reformed again. Or Phil Collins and Genesis got to say goodbye properly. Um, This is the Who's final tour for the 19th time. But when you go and put out an album, there is something about singing those new songs, regardless if we want to hear them or not, um, to a brand new crowd. So if Elton John still does another six or seven albums without touring, that will be rare. And I think that that's this whole... Um, uncharted territory that we're in too. Because normally when people get off the road and they retire, you never hear from them again. Yeah, no, not not in this case. And you, it's interesting, you, some of the numbers you just mentioned and the names you just mentioned and the enormous sums of money they're involved. You know, something I thought about earlier today or yesterday when I read, I read something that um, that Taylor Swift was going to take home as her profit from this concert tour, $300 million this year. That that was gonna, her take because there's other expenses and there's backup yep. singers and everyone else. Her take is going to be 300 million. Elton John is going to be bringing home hundreds of millions, all this stuff. I bet you that many of the people who are in the audiences to watch these shows who are cheering and thrilled to go there and happy to be in the crowd are the same people who sit on the sideline at home and scream at executives who make $5 million a year and go, (laughs) how dare they make that much money and see no problem with an artist making 300 million. I I don't know that there's not a little bit of blind spot there, but it's always puzzling to me how we're so upset that a business person makes what they make and an artist makes multiples of that and we're good with it. Yeah, and especially because those people that do make that kind of money in the business world are really people who make our lives 
amazing sometimes for the most part all day long except for like you know except if you're like a taylor swift fan and a swifty and you can say well she makes my life amazing anyway but like jeff bezos and and amazon have at it you bring me my product within an hour go for it netflix go for it you know but there's just something about people being really picky and choosy with with where they're going to you know figure out their anger and what's amazing that taylor swift number of 300 million that's batted about that's not even that's not even bringing into factor her album sales her streaming revenue so far in the last three weeks since she started this tour her streams and her sales have jumped 50 percent week upon week upon week upon week and that is all going into her pocket but she because she owned the master recordings of all these taylor versions of it and it's not just one song it's not just like elton john's oh you know your song that's going up the chart it's Every one of the 44 songs that Taylor Swift is doing is rising in streams and sales and vinyl and CDs and cassettes and merchandise. On average, each person at a Taylor Swift show has spent $1,300. Yeah, explain, by the way, for, wow. for the for the four people who haven't heard this, explain when you talk about the, the Taylor version of this, explain very briefly the story of why she's re-recorded all of her songs, correct? Yeah, she's she's pretty much getting there. So in a nutshell, she was offered to buy her master recordings, which would allow her to release her own music however she wanted to, because whoever owns those master recordings, the first recordings, get to exploit them. Normally, it's the record label part of it, but she turned it down um, because she thought that the price was too high. She They end up selling to somebody else that she doesn't like. So those records, those original records are still out there, but she doesn't get really that much money for him. She gets like the average $1, $2, whatever. So what she's done is she went back in the studio and started re-recording with a new band every single one of her studio albums. So now she owns those master recordings so she can sell them direct to fans. She can sell them in record stores. She's got a team that's working radio to get those songs on the radio. So now she becomes her own label where she gets eight to nine to $10 a record. So yeah. um, she's at number six now of 10. Yeah. And Eric, the amazing part about this is that if it was anyone else, like if it was whomever, uh, you would go, well, I've already got that album. Somehow Taylor Swift has created this thing where she is such a victim of this in the eyes yeah. of her fans that they will go out and buy these albums just to, uh, uh ease her pain somehow, even though she's making yeah. $300 million. Yeah. It, it's siding. It, it's yes. siding with They're, Taylor Swift in this, in this victim battle. Um, you know, the, the, the person that ended up buying them. Um, was her kind of quote arch nemesis in the music industry, um, and uh, Scooter Braun, who also manages Justin Bieber among others. Um, and for a while, um, Scooter had death threats against him and his family because Taylor Swift fans were so upset that Taylor didn't get to buy her own master recordings of it. Um, but you know, seemingly that's just how the world works, you know. So, but there are a lot of artists that have done this in the past, not nowhere near the success. I actually worked with a couple of classic rock artists who have re recorded their hit so they can be the one that gets pitched when they get an offer from Burger King, for instance. Mm. So they won't use the original version, they'll use the version that the band themselves recorded and owned and they get it for like half off but they get all the money for it but yeah you're absolutely right this is just part of of taylor swift's um 
you know, mentality and uh, an ability to turn any situation into something that makes Taylor Swift look really good and more by money. looking like a victim. Yeah, and, and I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I'm terrified of a threat from somebody who calls himself a Swifty. I'm still working on whether that makes me fearful. All right. um, Later this fall, and you may be involved with some of these, uh, some of these bands, but we just learned that later this fall uh, for the Canada walk of, what is it called? The, um, the The Canada's walk of fame. fame, They are inducing, inducting, not inducing, (laughs) inducting (laughs) 13. Inducing for the audience. Yeah. 13 go long for their speeches. 13 bands, April Wine, Chilliwack, Glass Tiger, Lee Aaron, Lighthouse, Loverboy, Max Webster, Platinum Blonde, Prism, Rough Trade, The Parachute Club, Trooper, and Michel Pagliaro. Uh, okay, great. A lot of these are the bands that we listened to in the 80s. Uh, my question when I heard this is, how have none of these been put onto Canada's Walk of Fame already? How is Loverboy or uh, Lighthouse or, you know, how, how have none of these been on there yet? What happens is is that for the, the Kansas Walk of Fame and also for the Juno Awards, Canadian Music Hall of Fame, and seemingly most Hall of Fames in this country, they tend to go very, very light and exclusive. For Kansas Walk of Fame in the past, they've done one music, one actor or actress, one person from science, one person from, say, politics or the rest of the world, and that's it. And so what all of these um, Hall of Fames have done is have a backlog of 50 to a hundred really, really worthy people that, you know, you got to induct them when they're still here. You have to induct them when they're still alive or else, you know, part of it gets lost and everything. So the Canada's walk of fame have done something brilliant and they've inducted um, 13 of this country's rock royalty. And they're going to call it the Canada's rock of fame. And they're putting all the artists that I think I saw at Maple Leaf Gardens or at Cops Coliseum way back when making me feel that much older. Yeah. But this is what the Juno should do is just have like 15 or 20 people inducted all at once, clear off the backlog so that these people who are hitting 70 and 80 years old, um, don't have to wait any longer for their success. You know what they've got to do? They've got to do this. Uh, it doesn't have to be Northern lights again, but if you have all of these bands there. Somebody has to write a song and while they're all in town together, you got to get them to do it. That would be interesting. Um, and I mean, what do you do? What do you do with it? Do you put it on cassette just to like make everybody happy back <laughs> yeah, in the day and give sure, out a free Walkman sure. and hearing aids? Yeah. Hear, hearing aids and a walker, not a Walkman. <laughs> um, yeah. But I mean, look, some of these, I mean, I'm trying, I'm looking down the list here. Some of these have to have been in Matt Platinum Blonde was in Northern Lights. Uh, uh, yeah. Mike Reno yeah. from Loverboy was in Northern Lights and, you know, Tears Are Not Enough. Um, Rough Trade, uh, Carol Pope. Co- Carol Pope was, yeah, yeah, I don't know if anyone else was. I don't think Lee Aaron or Glass Tiger, you know, they probably came along afterwards. But yeah, I mean, some of them were, this is, this is kind of a who's who of a generation of Canadian rock bands. It really yeah. is. Oh yeah. And they're still, for the most part, they're all still touring in one form or another, you know, April Wine just lost Miles Goodwin as the lead singer. He's kind of retired from the band, but he's still going out on the road solo. Chilliwack is still around. Bill Henderson plays a lot of shows. Just on talked the to Bill Coast. Henderson on the show here a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
Glass Tiger still plays at the summer festivals. Lee Aaron still plays. Lighthouse has never taken a break since 1969. They have been playing now for 54 consecutive years. Wow, so, um, yeah, Leverboy still sells out sheds and, and arenas in the U.S. during the summertime. You know, Kim Mitchell is still around. He's playing Kitchener Waterloo in a couple of weeks. Um, so a lot of these artists are still they're still pretty active. It is, uh, as I say, I just, I couldn't believe that all of these, I mean, great that they're getting in. I can't, I just, it, it just was amazing to me that none of them had been inducted before. It seems like yeah. an obvious one, but, um, I guess not. I, obvious to you and I, but no one else apparently, Eric. <laughs> but, um, but you know, even if they, even if the Walk of Fame has been around for 20 years, I don't know how long that they've been around for, um, they've only inducted like 20, 25 musicians, like in the history. Uh, and that's with Leonard Cohen and Neil Young and Ann Murray and Sarah McLaughlin and Andy Kim and all these artists that have sold hundreds of millions of albums around the world. And not that these artists don't, but you start to realize like you better get to the 80s really, really soon, because if you don't, it's going to creep up on somebody that those artists were peaking 40 years mm. ago. You know who's missing off this list from that era who needs to be in there? David Wilcox. David Wilcox is a fine choice. David Wilcox, you know, I still think that I said yeah. this to him on the show. I still think he is one of the most underrated Canadian musicians that we've ever seen. He is I great. Agree. And yet there's so many people that either forget about him or don't know him, uh, which, you know, there, there is, there is never a bad time at a David Wilcox show. Still. Still, still, because I mean, he's still he's still out there. David Wilcox is an amazing, amazing choice. I love that one. Yeah, well, maybe we'll, next year. Maybe next year they'll do another thirteen. Uh, and you know who else could get in? Eric Alper as the as the music publicist to the stars. You should I be on the Walk of Fame. I deserve my own statue. Okay, that's right, that's right in statue. front of CHM. Yeah, man. all the rest of them can have stars looking up at the statue <laughs> of Eric Alper. It'll be the first time over that anybody's looked up at me with my five foot one height. So uh, that'll make me feel really good you know whatever works i think a statue though <laughs> is good on a very high pedestal eric alper always appreciate you doing this thanks thanks for having me man we'll talk soon the scott radley show weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 chml the scott radley show podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast and wherever you get your podcasts i'm scott radley thanks again for listening and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast it is free you will never miss an episode and also be sure you rate us and review us whatever you think of us we'll take it thanks for listening